pray. Lord, what a great delight it is every Sunday to gather. We are your church. We are a very small part of your church around the world. But we thank you, Father, for this nuclear family in Christ that we get to meet with together every week for how you're growing us and changing us and deepening us. I thank you for the songs that we sang, especially, well, a couple of them, but the one that focused on our perseverance and the reality that you preserve us. Oh, Father, what a precious doctrine that is. You not only give us your word, but you have saved us based on your own choice of election before the creation of the world, and yet it doesn't stop there. You have also promised to preserve us to the end. And when we are tempted, we know, oh, Father, that the tempter will not prevail because you hold us fast. Help us, Father, as we hear this exhortation from Paul which will sound at first like we hold ourselves fast to remember that you indeed, ultimately and finally and sovereignly, will cling to us and hold us fast unto the end. May, by your grace, this message be a great encouragement as it presents a great warning. And may you give us ears to hear and not be offended by your truth. And we pray, we praise you for it, and we give thanks to you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2 once again. We are now three weeks into our study of 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, and we're kind of taking our time here because I believe the importance of the doctrines that we're, we're drawing out of this text cannot be overstated or overestimated in terms of impact. In fact, I suspect that the doctrines we learn about today may prove to be the most important ones of all, because I have been praying, as the elders were praying this morning, that the result, the consequence of this sermon is that some of you will repent and believe, and I don't know who you are, and some of you who are messing around with sin and, and you would say you are absolutely sure you're a Christian. I, I hope this sermon rocks you to the core of your being. And you begin to question appropriately, not inappropriately. I don't want you to be morbidly introspective. I just want you to be sensitive and be under the sway of the Spirit as you hear these things this morning. They will not be easy to hear. And I suspect some of you will leave mad. And that's okay. So let's stand together and read 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. And this is not the part that will offend you. 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. One more statement, verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, remind them of these things. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. This text turns our attention to several weighty doctrines or great ballast stones, as I have described them, given by God to enable us to endure suffering and to keep our little ship of faith upright in stormy seas until we reach the final destination. First, we discuss the doctrine of Christ. Jesus Christ is risen and reigning. Not going to re-preach these. Second, We've refreshed on the doctrine of Scripture. The Word of God is never bound. Thirdly, we relished the doctrine of election. The salvation of the elect is ever sure. This is verse 8, 9, and now election is verse 10. And today, by God's grace, we aim to conclude the final two teachings, which really combine into a single doctrine Namely, the doctrine of perseverance. Paul will point us to this doctrine by reminding us of two binary truths. Number one, first, that those who continue in the faith to the end will live and reign forever with Christ. There's one amen. (laughs) Listen, you're going to need that happy thought in the rest of this sermon. Those of you who continue in the faith to the very end, will live and reign with Christ forever. On the other hand, those who fail to persevere in the faith will be, listen carefully to these words, you will be disowned by Jesus forever. So let's notice the first one. Let's get back on the happy thought. The faithful are promised a blessed, and I would insert eternal reward. Verses 11 and 12, watch this. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. To begin, let's take a step Back to our study on election. We learned the definition of election last week. And here it is by way of reminder. The doctrine of election teaches us that election is an act of God before creation in which God chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. What does it mean to be God? It means he can do all of his holy will, all his holy will. He can and will do it. The doctrine of perseverance then comes along and says, all who are elect 
will not only be saved, but they will be kept by God's power and will persevere in faith until the end, and that those who do persevere until the end are truly saved. On the other hand, and this is the sobering part, those who fail to persevere to the end are not saved. doesn't matter if they go to church or say they believe in Jesus. The question that this doctrine naturally provokes is this question. How can I know if I am one of the elect? How can I know if I'm one of the elect? And that's a, that's a really good question, isn't it? It's a difficult question. It's a, it's a controversial question, perhaps, and depending on the answer. The question that, that we need to answer then is, how can I know if I am one of the elect? Well, there's a precarious thing about this, not because the word of God is unclear. We don't have a hard time exegeting the text on this. We know what the Bible teaches. What's hard to exegete is our own hearts. The doctrine of perseverance tells us that the elect persevere until the end, and, and that seems to be what this text is telling us. In fact, it is likely that this trustworthy saying, this pistos um, logos, the pistos logos, the faithful saying, was actually not just a doctrine that was taught, it was a song that was sung. It is laid out, probably in your Bible, it's a different typeface or it's, it's formatted differently because most scholars believe that this formatting indicates that it was a song, an ancient hymn that believers would sing, presumably in church or in family worship, and they would be reminded of these critical, critical truths. Notice verse 12. Here's what they sang. If we endure or persevere, we will also reign with him. And then the other part of verse 12, however, it says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now we, as far as I know, don't have a hymn like that. We don't sing, if we deny him, he will deny us. We don't have people holding their hands and swaying and saying, if we deny him, he will deny us. But apparently, in Paul's day, they were singing this because somebody believed they needed to rehearse it again and again and again. By the way, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have a, a New Testament to look at every night. Everything was oral. And songs with rich, sound, critical, essential doctrines were really important, as they are today, but not to the extreme that they were then. So... Now, someone might say, uh, hold on there, Baba Louie. Wait just a minute. I, I don't want to wait to the end to find out if I'm one of the elect. Is there any way for me to know now? Well, the Apostle Peter thinks so. It was he, after all, who said in 2 Peter 1.10, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election pretty clear, isn't it? Be diligent about this. Be careful about this. So there must be a way to know whether we are one of the elect. Now, I want to answer the question, 
How do I know if I'm one of the elect? I want to answer that question in two ways. First, I want to point you to some historic theologians, just very briefly, who have answered this question in a very succinct manner. And then we'll look at Scripture to see if what they say is true. But I want to get this in your head first before we start looking at the Scriptures. How do we know if I'm elect? Puritan pastor Matthew Henry. Uh, if you have a commentary, or it used to be when I was a kid, if anybody had a commentary, it was a Matthew Henry commentary. He was a Puritan pastor, and here's what he writes. No one can know their election but by their conformity to Christ. For all who are chosen are chosen to sanctification. It means you can't know that you're elect unless you are growing in holiness, growing in grace, maturing in Christ. Charles Hodge wrote, holiness is the only evidence of election. That's clear. J.C. Ryle weighs in, um, with, these, with the following words. He writes, The names and number of the elect are a secret thing, no doubt. But if there is one thing clearly and plainly laid down about election, it is this, that elect men and women may be known and distinguished by their holy lives. B.B. Warfield adds, we can never know that we are elect of God to eternal life except by manifesting in our lives the fruit of election. In other words, if you are elect and you have been called the effectual call of God and you have been born again by the Spirit, if the Spirit has taken up residence in you, one of the two of you is going to change, either you or the Holy Spirit. Who's it going to be? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that's true of each of the members of the Trinity. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, you begin becoming like him. You become more holy. That's the fruit of election. That's the fruit of redemption. That's the fruit of salvation. No fruit, no root. Now, I said that the text before us points to the doctrine of perseverance and that we would look at Scripture on this, and we will. We're going to stick with this text mainly. But each of these old divines have said that the way our election is made evident is through our holy living. This is everywhere in Scripture, by the way. But what is it our text teaches? Notice Paul says, verses 11 and 12, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, at first blush, Paul seems to be saying, if we meet the condition of embracing Jesus' death on the cross, we will have a certain consequence. We will live with him forever. And if we meet the condition of enduring to the end, we will experience the consequence of reigning with him forever. And by the way, the condition is here. I'm, I'm not about to say this is not conditional. It is conditional. These are conditions. And to this interpretation, however, I would propose that while Paul is not saying less than that, I think he's saying more. And the reason I think he's saying more 
is because of what is true about this first condition. And here's the condition again. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. The condition is, if we have died with him, consequence, we will live with him. Now, this statement should arrest the Bible student's attention. Because this statement is borrowed by Paul from Paul. (laughs) In, can anyone guess? Romans 6. Romans 6. In verse 1 of Romans 6, and I want you to turn there with me briefly. Come on, let's hear it. I want to hear those pages turning. You need, listen, don't just take what I say for granted. You should be able to look at the book and determine whether whether or not what I'm saying is true. I'm trying to argue something here, and if you don't follow it, then you'll just accept it or reject it on false grounds. And I don't want you to do either. So Romans 6, watch this. In verse 1, Paul asks a very important theoretical or rhetorical question. He asks, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Now, now understand, he's talking about how grace is greater than our sin. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And Paul is thinking, you know, somebody might say, or at least for the sake of argument, let's just get this out of the way, might someone then conclude it would be good for us in a way to sin? I mean, if God is sovereign, it'd be good for us to sin because grace will be all the more on display by our sin than if we didn't sin. And so he asks the question, shall we um, Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And the answer he gives is meganoida. In other words, may it never, ever be. This is Paul's way of saying that is a ridiculous question. Forget about there are no, there are no dumb questions. Paul says that's a dumb question. How, now, here's key phrase, and you should just write this You know, I I did the notes for a small group, the the discussion questions and the notes, days ago. I've done a lot of studies since then. You need to write this phrase right out of Paul in Romans. Here's his answer. May it never be. And here's the statement. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Listen, it's a foolish question. That question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? It's a dumb question. It's a foolish question because it leads to a dumb and a foolish answer. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's ridiculous that we would continue Continue living in sin, having died to it. Is he talking about Christian people? Yes. But he is teaching that those who truly have salvation, listen carefully, you've heard me say this before, now I'm showing you the text that it comes from. Paul is saying that those who truly have salvation, 
They now not only have a new relationship with God, but they have a new relationship with what? Sin. You have a new relationship with sin. True believers have a new relationship with God and a new relationship with sin. Whereas once we loved our sin, now that we have, been, we have died and been raised with Christ, we hate our sin. We hate our sin. We want to be loosed from it. But the only way to be loosed from it is to die. And Paul's saying, that is not a problem. Because someone has died in your place. Therefore, you have been loosed. We know Jesus died to free us, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Charles Wesley, after whom we named our number two, three, one of our sons, He was number five, five child. Charles Wesley was right when he said this. You can sing it with me. He breaks the power of canceled sin. What did Jesus do by his death? He canceled our sin. He canceled its power. It nullified the power of sin over the life of the spirit-indwelt believer, which is every believer. Therefore, verse 1 of Romans 6, we do not continue in sin that grace may abound. Verse 4, we are raised with Christ. We too, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Now you have a new life. So pictured in baptism last week, it's why we immerse, not only because the text uses the word for immerse, baptizo, we take people all the way underwater and we bring them back out because it's a picture of this. Romans 6, I think, is a, is a dry baptism. By that I mean he's not talking about you being physically baptized, he's talking about you being immersed into Christ so that's what God does on the moment that you first believe. You are immersed into Christ. You die with Christ. You were risen again from the dead. Jesus died and rose. When he rose, he, he rose a new person, as it were, in, 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 in resurrection clothing, resurrection body. And when you came to know Christ, when you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, his righteousness and his blood for your salvation, you died that day. But you didn't just die. You also were raised again from the dead. Now you have new life. You're not the same person anymore. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Also, from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, oh, let's, let's continue. Verse 7, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 8, we have been set free from bondage to sin. Verse 11, therefore, here's the action point. Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Here's what he's saying. Act as if sin has no power over you. Because it doesn't. If you give in to that temptation, it's just because you wanted to, not because you had to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Why? Because you've already died and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. And Jesus has canceled the power of sin. Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Then verse 12, another action point, really the same, just restated. Do not let sin reign in your body. And then verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. In other words, sin is not, listen carefully, sin is not sovereign over you anymore. It's not your king. Paul's concern here is that he doesn't want people going around saying they're saved by grace when they're clearly still enslaved to sin. If, if you want to meet people like that, maybe look in the mirror. But if you don't see that person there, just go downtown and try to share the gospel. You will meet people who are just evangelistic and maybe more evangelistic as you are proclaiming a gospel that says if you prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. Paul's concern is that there are people like this, even in that day. The grace, however, that saves for the pleasures of heaven also saves from the power of sin. The grace that saves you for the pleasures of heaven also saves you from the power of sin. Its power is canceled. You don't have to serve that old slave master anymore. You have been set free. Therefore, be free. Be free. Be who you are, a freed man in Christ. It's just another way of saying things like this. See if you recognize these from other passages. Grow now in grace. Become progressively more like Christ. Be holy, for I am holy. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Oh, we could go on and on. The gospel has come not only to save, but to teach you to deny sin's power. It has no power over you. Yes, as long as we live in the sinful world, as long as we live with a heart that is stained by corruption, we will wage war against sin. We will have temptation from without, and we will have temptation from within. But the death of Christ has made it possible for us to gain ground and to be victorious. <clears throat> and Ephesians 6 tells us that we can, by the gospel, by the helmet of salvation, which is our hope, by the belt of truth, by the shield of faith, by the breastplate of righteousness, by the shoes of the gospel, we can hold our ground. And by God's grace, we can take ground. 
we can move forward in holiness. We can. We can. We can. You can if you are a child of God. You can change. That sin's power is already defeated. You're just not. You're acting like it's not. You say, that's really simplistic. I know. I know. I, I, I know it's hard. But maybe it doesn't have to be as hard as you think. You not only can pursue holiness and gain ground, you must. You must. If you are a child of God by grace through faith, then listen to this. God hasn't just dumped this responsibility on you. God himself is sovereignly working in you to make you more like Christ. You're in Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 6. Flip the page to Romans chapter 8. And... Look with me at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew is just another word for election, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. If you belong to him, he is doing this in you. Therefore, you must grow. Just by the sheer power of his grace, you will grow. If you were a child of God. How about this? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation. What he's saying is, you bear the fruit of your own salvation. Got to be really careful. That sounds like heresy. And it would be if there wasn't another part of this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The fear and trembling part, that's just what you do when God's close to you, for whatever reason, <laughs> especially if he's not happy with you. <laughs> if you are a child of God, he's always satisfied with you. It doesn't mean you can't grieve the Holy Spirit. Anyway, that's secondary. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it, listen, it is God who is at work in you. Both to will, he gives you the will, and to work, he's actually working for his good pleasure. He is making you holy. He is enabling you to crush sin. He's, able, he's enabling you to say no. You know, recently, I remember it came to mind, I was wrestling with these truths, probably in this text, and, and wrestling them for the sake of my own heart, and gone to the Shepherd's Conference and heard great preaching. And I remembered Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, Prof. Hendricks, saying, gentlemen, you should say no to yourself every day just to prove that you can. And you know what Paul is saying? You have the power. When you feel that temptation to come on, coming on, you have the power to say no. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to entertain the earliest thinking of that. You say, well, I have trouble when I go to bed at night. All kinds of stuff rushes into your head. Fill your mind with him. Here, try this. When you go to bed, rather than letting your mind wander, quote scripture in your heart. How about this? The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not lack. I don't lack anything. Why would my heart run after something else when the Lord... You start meditating on a text like that. And you know what? Your heart's going to change direction. You know why? Because sin will not have power over you. Yes, you are responsible to kill sin, but God is working in you sovereignly and infallibly to finish the work that he began. That's how he started in the book of Philippians. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus, on the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work in you. You have everything you need if you are in Christ. This is your responsibility. Now hold your hand, uh, hold your finger here in in Romans 8, because we're going to turn back there one more time. But go with me to the end of your Bible, to the book of Jude. I want you to see something. Because here's the thing. What, what you're hearing me say, I hope, correctly, is this. Does God call you and command you to persevere in the faith? Yes. That's one yes. Yes. Listen. Does God command you to persevere in the faith? Yes. Does he warn you what will happen if you don't persevere in the faith? Is it only your responsibility to persevere in the faith? No. It is also God. And, And so many things. Listen, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was his power. But God didn't walk out of the tomb for him. Lazarus walked out on his own initiative. You can do this with everything that God does in your life and empowers you to do. The blind man, God didn't see for him. He healed his eyes. It was a responsibility, as it were, for the man to open his eyes and see. That's perseverance. There is God's sovereignty, and there is man's responsibility. And sometimes you'll be reading along, and Paul or one of the other apostles will say, you're responsible, you're responsible, you're responsible. Even this, in a couple of occasions where in the New Testament writings you read words like this, purify yourself. (gasps) We don't have the capacity to do that. Yes, you do. You can't do the whole thing. God must purify you. We see this again and again and again. Everything God requires, he also provides. Now, I want to show this to you in a a marvelous place in the book of Jude, chapter 1, because there's only one. I said it that way because I found myself saying, chapter, what chapter is this? Chapter, this is only chapter. Verse 21 Listen to this. Okay, so we're just saying, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. And everything that that God wants me to do, he will hold me fast, right? Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves, watch this, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself. I mean, should we begin singing? I will hold me fast. I will hold... He's saying, keep yourself in the love of God. But every Sunday at the end of every service, I read the rest of this. Go to verse 24. 
now to him who is able to keep you. To keep you from what? From stumbling. From sin. You don't have to do it. Because he is holding you fast. He is empowering you to say no to sin. Beloved, this, this can be so freeing and so helpful in your life. Holiness is what we're after. Holiness is what we're after. Listen, God created the world to make his glory go public. He created you, humans. If you're a human being, God created you in a way that's unique to all of creation. To manifest the glory of God. And you have children. You can't hardly stop having children. And God made it that way so that the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Everywhere there is a human being whether he's in the prime of life, on his deathbed, or in his mother's womb, the glory of God is on display. You were created for his glory. And the glory of God himself is his holiness. It is what makes all of God's attributes stunningly beautiful, lovely, glorious. He is essentially holy. Think Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah in a vision walks into the temple and he hears the, the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you've heard R.C. Sproul, as I have many times say, the angels never said God is love, love, love. Not peace, 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 mercy, but he is holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God. Every aspect of his character and being is holy. That, you know what that means? His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. And some of, you, some of you are so merciful, and sometimes your mercy is an unholy mercy. That's never true of God. And sometimes your love is an unholy love. It's never true of God. But you know what else is holy in God? His justice, his condemnation, his jealousy, his election. He is holy in all of his infinite perfections. Holiness is simply the manifestation of the glory of God. He is holy by nature, and his holiness is what makes all of its attributes gloriously beautiful beyond description. Hence the psalmist says in Psalm 29 in the King James Version, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And holiness for the, the child of God is a great delight. We're not offended by holiness. When he says, be holy, for I am holy, this is not holier than thou, that's an attitude. It's something that believers love. You know what? When I'm working with guys who are struggling with purity issues and they, they come to terms with these texts, 
They start saying no to sin by the power of the Spirit and the Word. Sooner or later, they come to me and say, Pastor, you were right. <laughs> you were right. What, what, was, what am I right about? Blessed are the pure in spirit. Blessed are the pure of heart. That's what it is. Blessed are the pure in heart. These guys will say to me, I've never known such joy. It's the joy I know now that my heart has been purified. This is what holiness is. Blessed are the pure in heart. And it is our holiness, the beauty of God seen in our integrity, our kindness, our purity, our hard work, our humility, our love, our self-control, our truth. It is that kind of holiness in us that shines forth like a light which men see and glorify God thereby. Holiness is the glory of God. But there is a truth that we also know. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now you know what that verse is talking about. All have sinned. God created us for his glory. None of us, by nature, none of us glorify him. We are unholy. But if we have died with Christ, it's the only way. It's the only way to get away from unholiness. It's the only way to break the, the power of sin is to die. The only way to get out of slavery is to die. And if you have died with Christ, you are no longer by nature unholy. I'm not saying that you can be perfect. Please don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand Paul. In fact, Paul has to, has to throw in caveats. Listen, it's not as though I've already attained, but I press on. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be growing. If there is life, there will be growth. If there is no growth, there's probably no life. If you are alive in Christ, you will be growing. You will be becoming more like Jesus. And so you see, beloved, if you are one of the elect, you will persevere to the end by God's grace, by the power of God's grace, his keeping power. By the way, don't you love Psalm 121? The Lord is your keeper. <laughs> love that psalm. So perseverance is not, it's not just saying to yourself and others, persevere, this is what perseverance is not. It's not saying to yourself and others, I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in Jesus. Yeah, but I still believe in Jesus. I know, but I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in Jesus. Rather, it says, I still believe in Jesus, and the evidence that my faith is real and saving is that it is marked by killing sin and growing in the beauty of holiness. And I have a long, long, long way to grow. But I'm not the man I once was. I believe in Jesus, and I love Jesus. John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. 
And I strive to be like Jesus, knowing that God is at work in me to make me like Jesus. That's the encouragement. God is at work. And you know what? His work is primary. My work is secondary. My work in sanctification is a dependent work. His work is independent. No one can make him do it. No one can hold him back. No one can slow him down. He is absolutely independent. It's what it means to be God. This independent God is at work in your heart. And so here is the blessed promise that the early Christians sang. If we have died with him, in a Romans chapter 6 kind of dying, we shall live with him. If we endure in the Romans 6 kind of way of enduring, we will also reign with him. This is the answer to our question. How does one know if he is among the elect? How does one know if he's among the elect? Well, none can know but by their conformity to Christ. And holiness is the only evidence of election. And elect men and women may be known and distinguished by their holy lives. And we know that we are elect by the fruits of election. Therefore, Peter says, again, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Therefore, that leads us then to this. The faithful, the faithful are promised and blessed. They're promised to be blessed with eternal reward. And secondly, and much more briefly, the faithless are warned of certain doom. I hope you still have your finger in Romans 8, because we're going to come back to that in just a second. Let's refresh on our text, though, make sure we're getting this right. 12b, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. To deny him means to speak and live in a manner that belies your profession of faith. It's to speak and live in such a way that declares you're a liar when you say that you believe in Christ. You don't have to deny Jesus the way Judas did. You don't have to sell him for money. You don't have to betray him with a kiss. You can deny him simply by treasuring everything else in life except him. In Paul's day, there were already people who claimed to be Christians. And even attended church, apparently. They claimed to be Christians and even attended church, but they weren't warring against sin. They weren't being careful about their own souls. They weren't gaining any ground in Christ's likeness. Like Hymenius and Philetus, who were shipwrecked. Truth be told, they weren't even trying. Now, everybody, eyes up here. I think there are some. I have no idea who you are. Maybe I shouldn't say that so you think I'm speaking directly to you. 
I can tell you this, the Holy Spirit's directly speaking to some of you. Some of you aren't even trying. You're not even in the game. And that should scare you. That should scare you. Practically speaking, such people's relationship with God is no different than their unbelieving friends, except that maybe they go to church now and then to soothe their conscience because they believe, they pray to prayer. They're going around saying, I still believe, I still believe, I still believe. But their lives belie their profession. Unfortunately, many commentators hamstring the meaning of the phrase here before us. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And such commentators tell us that Paul means that Jesus will accept the faithless anyway. But that can't be true. Exegetically, that cannot be true. You have to force a different theology in here. And it's not that... It's not that the Bible, especially the New Testament, isn't full of, of promises that God's grace is greater than all your sin and that you can repent by his grace. But that's not what this text is talking about. This text is the warning. Now, there are two couplets in each stanza of this song. The first conditional phrase of the couplet affirms the consequence of the second. Now let me show you. If we have died with him, that is the condition. And if we meet that condition, if that condition, let me say it differently, if that condition, condition has been met, we will live with him. That's the consequence. If we endure, we will reign with him. This is the condition, and this is the fruit of that condition. You might call this unmerited conditional grace. You say, that sounds like heresy. It's not. Why is that not heresy? Because time and time and time again, like in Romans 6 and in other texts that I've already quoted today, man is told, meet the condition. And God is said to have met it for us. Every condition he lays down, it is only by his grace, but by his grace he meets it. Therefore, we persevere. And that's why once you are truly a child of God, you will always be a child of God. But once you are a child of God, you will not only have a new relationship with God, but a new relationship with sin. The God who, by his grace, gives you a new relationship with him also gives you a new relationship with sin. And then, when we come to the second stanza, we should expect, once again, to hear the first conditional phrase affirm the meaning of the second, and so we do. But this time we find not a song of blessing, but a dirge of warning. We read, if we deny him, that's the condition. He will also deny us, that's the consequence. 
And just as the first couplet repeated the same thought, it repeats the same thought here. If we are faithful, that's the condition. If we are faithful, that is, if we continue to, I'm sorry, if we are faithless, if we are faithless, if we continue practicing unbelief, that's the condition. The consequence is this. He remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And here's the warning. As gracious as Jesus has been to sinners and giving his own life as a ransom for many, as gracious as he, as he has been from the beginning to grant a free offer, come to me all who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly at heart and you will find rest. It's like this, this isn't rest from your, from your career. This is, this is rest from trying to earn your salvation by legalism. Come to me, all of you. Anyone who wants to drink of the waters of life, come, come. Jesus has been gracious to do everything the Father has called him to do. And he will now be faithful to his Father at every point. He will be faithful to his own message at every point. He will be faithful to his own nature at every point. He will do what he has repeatedly promised. He will do exactly what God has declared in every book of the Bible, that we, we who are unfaithful, if that is you, he will make sure that you experience what he promised you will experience. You say, what is that? On the judgment day, what is it? Well, the text says, he will cast them into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Is God gracious? Yes. Is he loving? Absolutely. Is he holy? Does his holiness require justice. Yes, it does. But Lord, Lord, many will say on that day, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You, see if this phrase fits what I've said so far. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You didn't care a lick about your sin. You said you belonged to me, but your whole life belied your profession. Now you may be thinking, how is this a great ballast stone in the ship of faith? How is this a great ballast stone to keep our ship afloat? In a word, divine warnings are good for us. Divine warnings are good for us. They keep us safe. The Proverbs are full of warnings. Many of them were written for Solomon's children, his sons in particular, to keep them safe from all kinds of things. Easy sex and easy money being the two dominant ones. 
One thing I like to do when I go backpacking with my family, and this is going to sound a little bit weird and nerdy, I take pictures of warning signs because it reminds me of Proverbs. And there are some doozies out there. I was flipping through pictures last night. There's one at Nevada Falls in Yosemite National Park. It's a long hike up. You've got to pass other falls to get there. And when you get to the top, there's no guardrails to keep you out of the water. There's just a warning sign. See if this sounds encouraging. Stay out of the water. Powerful hidden currents will carry you over the fall. Stay back from slippery rock at the water's edge. If you go over the fall, you will die. <laughs> no kidding. It's an exact quote. And then they have a drawing, a, a hand sketch of a guy going over the fall. You know what? I appreciate those signs. Love those signs. This is a gift from the Apostle Paul. It's sobering warning to help us remember the grave danger we're in if we fail to take our sins seriously. One of Paul's danger signs is found in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see it before we close. There's no place probably in the New Testament that is more profound on the security of the believer than Romans 8. That's why the Puritans called it the great eight. Nevertheless, chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, listen to this. So then, brothers, so he's coming to the end of his argument, right? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything, and you don't owe sin anything. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will, what? die. He's already told us that in Romans 3, 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. He's not just talking about physical death. He means eternal death. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if you do put to death the deeds of the body, the fleshly impulses that lead you into sin, if you put them to death, guess what? God was at work in you. God was at work preserving you, keeping you. The message is plain, beloved. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The message is plain. If you don't care about your sin, listen, all eyes up here. If you don't care about your sin, you are not a Christian. If you don't care about your sin, you are lost. It doesn't matter if you say, yes, but I still believe, I still believe, I still believe. If you don't care about your sin, you are none of his. You are none of his. You say, well, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better. Listen, until your sin has been canceled, it will never be conquered. And I would just plead with you as we close here. The Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, convic convincing you of sin and righteousness and judgment. You still have time. 
as long as you are in this world. You say, yeah, but what about the election thing? What about, you know, I still might not be called. Listen, that's none of your business. That's none of your business. God gives that for the encouragement of the saints and for the warning of the unbelievers to repent. Now, while you have time, he is just as gracious now as he's ever been. He will save if you come and say, God, I, I just thought it was about praying a prayer. And by your spirit now, I understand. I understand that I cannot live for my flesh and live in the spirit at the same time. God, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. Will you receive me? Will you accept me? He will. You need but to ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious promise and warning. We are forever debtors to the Spirit. And it is a blessed indebtedness because in holiness there is delight and great reward. And so we give you praise. I ask, Father, would you send your spirit to do his saving work, that wind of heaven to blow through this place, causing men and women, perhaps boys and girls, to be born again. No preacher can make that happen. All we can do is proclaim the truth. And it is your truth that creates faith by your spirit in the hearts of those whom you are calling to yourself. May they not just walk, may they run to you and find you to be everything that you have promised to be for them in Jesus. All of it to the praise of your glorious grace and to their and our eternal joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>